My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me uh, Awakening, the Awakening, Afterlife screenwriter, etc., etc., Stephen Volk. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Now, we're going to do five great British horror films, and before we start, I'll just, for the listener that might come to this for the first time, quickly explain the rules. Um, it's five films. We get five minutes per film, and when Edgar Broughton Band sing Out Demons Out... We, uh, we stop and we move on to the next film. The films will be in chronological order, so i.e. the year they were released, and uh, that's, about, that's about the size of things. Um, but before we do it, a question I wanted to ask, actually, which I forgot to ask, because for the dear listener who doesn't know, I've just speak, spoke to Stephen about writing The, the Awakening for another podcast, which will go out separate to this. Um, but one thing I didn't ask then, which I, I'm trying to introduce to me podcasts, is when we're talking about horror is, just very briefly, what do you remember being your first horror film that you watched or had an impact on you? Um, and just after British, this sentence, mm, I just wonder what... I, what, can, what, I, can, I can be specific, but it's not, not really a film. Um, go on, go on, well, tell because, me. Because um, I, I grew up liking comics and, uh, and then gravitating to uh, famous monsters of film land. So I guess I got into horror by seeing those black and white stills from uh, the American magazine long before I could see any of the X films that were then coming out in the mid mid, late sixties. So the idea of these, um, you know, like stills from uh, Peter Laurie in mad love or, um, or the, you know, the universal horrors uh, intrigued me long before I got a chance to see the films. And eventually they were, they were shown late at night on, on, on TV. But before I saw them, I can remember there was, uh, at the time when I was getting into horror um, through reading creepy stories and and seeing, you know, stuff in these magazines, uh, Forbidden Fruit in a way, because I wasn't old enough to see the films. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a, a, a program on TV called Cinema, uh, produced by Granada, um, and it was very much like the, the film program on the BBC at the moment. Uh, and there was one program that I, I read about in the, in the listings, as we'd now say, but Radio Times specifically. Um, and it was about horror films. And I couldn't, I couldn't wait to see this program. And I remember it was at 10.30 at night, which was past my bedtime. Mm-hmm. And I pleaded with my dad to watch this program about horror films. Um, and I remember sitting up and watching it. He said, you can stay up and watch it as long as you don't get scared. Uh, so I sat watching it with my dad. I don't know what age I was. I couldn't, I couldn't really guess. Um, and I remember the first shot was uh, from the Wolfman. And it was that misty wood uh, and the panning shot in the wood. And Lon Chaney is the Wolfman hiding behind a tree. And the camera goes closer to him. And I thought, fuck's sake, that looks like a real Wolfman. And I was really... It was the realism of the makeup really struck me. 
And I remember my dad said, and the other the other clip that was shown was Nosferatu, you know, popping out of his coffin, mm. you know, which is, which is still pretty chilling to this day, you know, if you ask me. Mm. Um, but I remember my dad saying, and my dad you know, didn't give a damn really about uh, about films or literature or anything other than rugby. But um, but he said, what you have to remember about horror, I must have been a bit spooked, is that they're either a good makeup job or they're kind of puppets. Um, which is pretty pretty astute assessment of special effects in those days. Yeah. Um, but that was my that was my formative experience. That that, sh- that one shot uh, on on cinema of uh, Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, that's that's kind of that's it, it's great to see that journey in because I think obviously it's going to be different for everybody. Um, yeah. So let's start with your first film. Clock's ticking. The Innocence. Right. The Innocence, which is which is uh, directed by Jack Clayton, um, was rather, um, and starring Peter Wingard as the ghost Quint in an adaptation of Henry James' classic novella, The Turn of the Screw. Mm. Um, and the reason I absolutely love The Turn of the Screw, and I love this absolutely immaculate version of it, apart from the luminous photography and black and white photography and absolutely stunning central performance um, of the governess um, is, I think, even when I saw it at a a young age, and I probably first saw it on TV, um, uh, only very, very recently saw it on the big screen where it transforms it into something magisterial, to be honest, or majestic, Mm. I would even say, Um, is that I think what what really stuck in my mind about it and why I think it's the archetypal, the brilliant ghost story of all time is is that idea of subjectivity. Um, and I know people talk about it ad infinitum and people even argue against it. Yeah. But for me, the motivating factor of it being so good as a ghost story is that you can believe it on a psychological level. You can believe it as a projection of the governess's neurosis. Um, and what's interesting about it and her sense of repression uh, as against her suspicion that the children are becoming sexually aware. Right. And her paranoia about the children being sexually aware uh, really gets to her. Um, so on lots of different levels about the Victorian society and everything like that. And, um, you know, uh, I think it's absolutely you know, immaculately brilliant. Um, and, you know, just just on a purely, uh, on a level of image creating, it's brilliant. You know, the idea that the the ghost of Miss Jessel is seen right across the lake. You can hardly make her out, you know. And then when you see Quint, he's through the window, so he's kind of blurry. You know, you, don't, you never really see them full on, so you kind of hesitate from feeling that you've kind of seen them maybe it was a trick of the light or maybe it was just you know we've all had those experiences where you see a tree at the side of the road when you're driving and you think it's someone maybe hitchhiking or something like that i do anyway Mm. um and uh, there's very clever brilliant uh choices made by the director um you know the fact that the interior of the house looks quite kind of gothic in that churchy kind of way yet the garden is kind of so full of um, lush foliage, it's almost like an encroachment of a jungle, you know, of the primal kind of instinct of nature, almost wanting to encroach upon this kind of bastion of religiosity, 
um, in the centre of it, all all completely understated as a, as a subtext, you know. Um, and I just think a, a, as an absolute masterpiece. For me, a masterpiece is defined by by the nature of being able to rewatch it and rewatch it and discover more things in it. And I think that I think it a, applies to the innocence, uh, you know, a hundredfold. Have I had the benefit of speaking to you before, and now we're talking about this? Do you do you think do you think then that the um, the power of the ghost as a metaphor for 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 Victorian repression was why it was such a a sort of fundamental source of fiction. Of I think period. what I think what's interesting about the Innocents, by the way, is the screenplay, um, which was adapted from the from the play, in fact, um, mm. uh, as well as the novella. Um, the screenplay was adapted by Truman Capote, uh, you know, a gay man from the deep south, mm. um, who I think probably knew a thing or two about sexual repression. Um, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that was a very interesting choice. I think. Uh, I think John Mortimer, also a brilliant writer and accomplished kind of playwright, was brought in, I think, at a later stage to maybe maybe more Britishize aspects of it. I can't remember the exact reasons, but mm. um, but I think it was a really interesting choice. I think uh, Harold Pinter was initially asked to do it. Um, I think he declined, and I can't remember the reason why he declined. But Jack Clayton uh, you know, really pulls off an amazing amazing uh, piece of work and and it's one that i return to really it's it's a formal you know f uh, not formal i mean a, a kind of a primal inspiration to to me really and it, and it never fails to inspire really? yeah and and in fact that the awakening as we talked about on the other podcast uh, you know initially had its life as a as a sequel to uh, well there we go <laughs> Cut off in my prime. <laughs> That's great. I love it. I love it. Right then, swiftly moving on, we're going to jump forward six years to 1967, and yeah. Quatermass and the Pit. Do you want to? Do you want to tell us maybe when you, how you first got to see this, who you're with? Well, I think uh, me and my cousin, who was uh, more or less the same age, we used to. Um, uh, I think we used to get in pretty much underage to to the White Palace Cinema, which no longer exists in the town where where, where we grew up in Pontypridd in South Wales. Mm. Uh, there were two cinemas, neither of which exist now, the County and the, and the White Palace. We, and and I, I'm sure this was in the White Palace. Um, and it was one of the first horror films, I think, that we, that, that we saw in the cinema. And I, I think it just... I was too young to see... Uh, the Quatermass series on TV. So this mm -hmm. was a completely new experience for me and something, um, I think, unique in that it was my discovery of Nigel Neal's work. Yeah. And again, what blew my mind and made me really excited was, uh, and I've written about this in, in a recent book um, called We Are the Martians, which is about various people writing essays about Nigel Neal. Right. Um, and I specifically in that book wrote about uh, his influence on me writing Ghostwatch, um, mm. which I did in 1992, but uh, which was heavily influenced by the stone tape that, that he wrote. Mm. But um, getting back to, to the, the main thing about Nigel Neal was this brilliance he had for um, using up-to-date technology and science. So a, so a science kind of investigator you know, Quatermass was from the British Rocket Group, I think, or whatever it was called. Mm. Um, but 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 he would have science fiction ideas, but they'd be somehow 
often underpinned to kind of ancient forces. So the sense that ancient forces um, and forces from outer space were somehow, um, you know, not antithetical, but, but actually part of the same uh, milieu in, in his work. So, so things from the far past, you know, uh, uh, in, this, in the case of Quatermass on the Pit, it was a crashed spaceship from Mars that was under, you know, buried under the London Underground, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, but actually the more creepy idea was that, was that the Martians had, already, uh, had always been around and we were, in fact, Martians. You know, it's a really, really nightmarish and, um, and brilliant idea um, that was both science fiction and horror. I think that's what really I found exciting is that is that it was it was that primal kind of dread that you that you get from M.R. James or Lovecraft combined with uh, the kind of science science fiction that was very very British and almost kind of dour compared to say Star Trek or that very uh, Forbidden Planet you know the original film which is very much go out and conquer the universe which is the American Buck Rogers kind of attitude I think Quatermass was much more a bloke in a raincoat, you know, with an office job who happened to discover things and bureaucracy stood in his way, you know, as it would post-war, you know. Um, and it, it was uniquely kind of what you felt, you know, the 50s and 60s were like in Britain, you know. And that was that was weirdly compulsive as well, because it wasn't it wasn't um, like I say, spaceships and ray guns. It was more what was happening around the corner in that. You know, behind that throbbing electricity pylon, you know. <laughs> and, uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You think of like um, what's it called? Um, what became the village of the damned? You know, that's like yeah, just some yeah. leafy, oh, leafy yeah, village um, in. Yeah, um, uh, John Wyndham. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much in the in tradition of John Wyndham, but I, get, but I guess it's that. Thing, I, I guess it's. I never thought again. It's that. I'd love to talk about these conversations. I'd never thought about the because America was obviously metaphorically speaking always in this cold war, so it had to be victorious and valedictory in everything it did even if it was the culture and fiction i think it's more like a kind of frontier mentality that that, that you know the universe is like the wild west it's mm. there to be conquered and you send your wagon train out you know the original pitch for star trek was wagon train to the stars was the subtitle you know mm. um really <laughs> i don't think i think quatermass and the pit is about as opposite from wagon train to the stars as you can you can imagine i mean the pit is 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 not the stars is it it's it's underneath it's the gods below, you know. I was going to say, um, but, it, but, it, but it's about it's about doubt rather than hope, isn't it? But also the below, of course, is a great metaphor for. Again, we talked about this in the other podcast, but the repressed, you know, it's mm. almost like the the alien invasion of humanity is what we've repressed, uh, and Quatermass in the Pit is the return of the repressed. Is the realization that oh shit, this has happened in the past, and and it's always been here, um, and in in a way, it's a kind of mess. Possession. Sounds like a problem again, Stephen. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> right then, just slipping, just slipping another twelve months on from Quite a Mass yeah. in the Pit, we've got Devil Rides Out. So, right, okay. So this is um, this is another of my absolute favourite films. Um, I think it's for me one of the best Hammer films. Um, I think. Even now, if I were to play the first three minutes with the title sequence of those magical symbols coming up on the James Bernard score, mm. I would get a frisson of horror and anticipation that I think is absolutely 
you know, the essence of, of horror in a way and the essence of Hammer. Um, uh, of course, Dennis Wheatley was a, a best-selling author even in the uh, 30s. You know, Devil Rides Out, I think, came out in the mid-30s or the early 30s. I think 35 or 34 or 35. It has, it has one of my favourite um, examples of what it must have been like living in London compared to now, where somebody's craziness was given over to the fact that they chose to live at Regent's Park. And there was, and there was, and well, there was we know that to be true. And there was plenty, and there was plenty of properties available in Mayfair. And I was reading this, thinking this is this is an amazing document of its time. <laughs> yeah, and I think someone someone that's possessed is uh, someone seriously gives the, the worry <laughs> that someone might have been on the champagne again, you know, um, or someone's been on the Clico. Yeah. <laughs> but that's part of the uh, that's part of the. Um, I would say, charm of mm. the hatedness of Dennis Wheatley. People are very disparaging about him. I've just written a, I've just written a book about him, or part of a book about him. Mm. So I'm kind of, uh, I'm a little kind of one-sided um, because I think people, people forget at their peril in a way that he was the, you know, he was called at one time the prince of thriller writers, and I, I fervently believe that he was the Stephen King of his day, and mm. and. When The Devil Rides Out came out in 1934, I'm guessing, um, you know, critics were saying this is the best novel of its kind since Dracula, you know? Really? So, and from that point, I think that was his second or third book, uh, he was a best-selling author right through to the early 1970s when he died. All his books remained in print, uh, and he's fantastically successful and now almost forgotten. So I've, it's, it's a bit of a... Creed occur of mine to to um, champion him a wee bit. I also find him really interesting character because people assume that he's a kind of right wing fuddy duddy, but he's much actually much more complex than that. Yes, he you know he worked for the war effort in military intelligence and he had an abiding hatred of communism, which is part of his generation, and he was very you know right wing in his views in in many ways. Um, but not in other not in other ways, you know. He was virulently anti-Hitler. There's no, uh, you know, and worked, you know, uh, assiduously in the war effort to defeat Hitler. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think, unfortunately, uh, I kind of compare him to kind of when he was younger. He was a little bit like John Steed in the Avengers, a real English gent with all the good things that implies. Mm. And then he came to, in the 60s. As he became more successful and he wore, you know, he wore his um, plum-colored uh, 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 jacket to dinner and ha always had a glass of port in front of him, he became almost like those mad generals that were always in the Avengers, you know, who were always plotting world domination. So he went, he, got, he went from one cliche to the other, really. But but I think he's, I think as often happens with uh, with authors, they, they, they ebb and flow, and I think he's given a terribly bad press. But to the, to the film, rather than Wheatley, hmm. um, I think it's an absolute archetypal Hammer film in that it has this, you know, thanks to Wheatley, it has this Manichaean uh, clash of opposites of good and evil, which Wheatley was absolutely obsessed by, um, you know, and the threat to the kind of, British way of life, you know, permeates Wheatley's story and the Hammer film. You know, these people are protecting our British world against, you could say, quotes, foreigners, but mm. you could also 
say, quote, Satanists. And sometimes Wheatley unhelpfully conflates those two things together, <laughs> foreigners and Satanists. But really uses Satanists, I believe, as a symbol of threat to things that he values. Uh, and I think that comes through really strongly. But really what makes the film for me is his knowledge of the occult and the fact that he makes it so genuine and plausible and believable. Even the maddest idea of the angel of death on horseback or the giant spider, whether it's done well or not done well. Oh, do you want to finish that thought? But I was just saying that the, 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 the wonderfully poetic idea of them standing in the magic circle to yeah. face... And the, the angel of death. These are these are kind of poetical images worthy, I think, of someone like Jean Cocteau in a different context. And that's mm. why I love love uh, the Devil Rides Out. It's like I think Paul Schrader said, the Exorcist is a, just a brilliant image. You know, God and the devil fighting over the soul of a child. And I think that kind of poetic simplicity is in the Devil Rides Out as well. No, no, I agree. I agree. Uh, and <clears throat> moving moving on at pace, we we jump we, we leave the sixties behind us now for your fourth choice, and dive into the seventies for what is arguably uh, the one of the iconic uh, British horror films of I guess all time. I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Is, um, yeah. Nicholas Rogue's um, "Don't Look Now." Yeah, and I have to uh, preface this by saying where I was and when I was in art college at the time and yeah, I went to a double bill of Don't Look Now and The Wicker Man Oh, you look him, you see, you look one him. wet Wednesday afternoon in Coventry and I think I was the only person in the theatre and I saw The Wicker Man first Yeah. and I thought bloody hell that's good and I still do obviously mm. and the ending was a bit of a shock but I have to say I, look, I watched Don't Look Now and um the ending of Don't Look Now literally made me feel I was insane because I did not see the ending coming. And I'm not going to give a spoiler, but you, you, you know what I mean, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, mean, and I, agree with, I, agree I literally it's, was it's, so it's, misdirected yeah, 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 as to thinking, to I was thinking along the lines that Donald Sutherland uh, ha was the murderer. Was the murder? Donald Sutherland was the murderer out there, and this was going to be the big revelation because you know there were people, people bodies being pulled out of the canal and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and of course, I wasn't expecting the ending at all. I thought, Jesus! I, I almost literally thought they put the wrong reel on here. I don't get this. This is <laughs> a different film. It was like I lost my mind. It had the most massively profound effect of any film I've ever seen. And then when the montage comes at the very end, do you remember? Mm. After the violent act and the last few seconds when you have the montage reminding you of the clues that have happened through the film. Oh, yeah. Tell you what's going on and, and how you've been misdirected. I just thought that blew my mind in terms of the genius of the film. Absolute genius. And, and also I felt, unlike any other film I've seen, this film feels like the complexity of real life. It doesn't feel like a story that someone's written down that's that that's made up characters that are being played by actors. It actually felt that you were being privy to something, not even documentary realism, but beyond documentary realism into a kind of existential realism um, that was so, you know, more hyper real than a documentary in terms of the emotion. And I wanted to read to you, I'm just reading a book about 
uh, the man who fell to earth, Nicholas okay. wrote on that he followed up. Mm. Uh, and I hope I get I get a chance to not be cut off with this. But got, the introduction to this book, the book is called Earthbound, David mm -hmm. Bowie and the Man Who Fell to Earth by Susan Compo. Okay. And it's really good. I'm halfway through it. But the introduction is by Graham Clifford, who was the editor of Man Who Fell to Earth and also of Don't Look Now. And he said this, which I think is, sums up why I had such a profound effect on me. He says, Nick has always regarded the slavish adherence to plot to be largely unnecessary. His focus has mostly leaned towards the exploration of inner feelings, visible emotion, and the resultant effect on plot of the human psyche. In other words, to get inside his characters. Mm. He designs his visuals and edits his dialogue in an attempt to achieve this aim. Consequently, his movies require more attention and concentration on part of the viewer. In fact, he regards the audience as a participant in the movie. As in life, one doesn't always understand what's happening or why at any one point in time. So it is in Nick's movies. But if you allow yourself to be immersed in what's going on, rather than becoming frustrated by trying to figure it out, then his movies become more accessible. And I think that sums up how I felt. I felt I was privy to something that wasn't being explained to me. And that felt like life, because I'm a neurotic. I think mm. life isn't being explained to me. I don't know what's significant, what isn't significant. When the when the when the bishop or the Catholic cardinal rather kind of plays with this little um, brooch on his lapel, is that significant? What does it mean? What does the brooch mean? <laughs> or when he wakes up in the middle of the night, does that mean he's got some telepathic contact to one of the other characters, or does it mean that uh, a spiritual person is somehow attuned? to something supernatural that's happening elsewhere. And the, love, the brilliant thing, I think, from a screenwriting point of view is these things are visual ideas and they're ideas that don't need to be verbal ones in terms of the script. Mm. Although, having read the script, what's really fascinating is the first sequence, like the 20-minute sequence of the death of the child, is extensively written down, really specifically written down. So yeah, it is, yeah. To the screenwriters. Having said that, most of the rest of the story is almost exactly as in the Daphne du Maurier story. So it's almost like a, a whole act was added at the beginning. The Daphne du Maurier story starts with them in the restaurant and the couple saying to each other... Oh, I didn't know that. Don't look now, but those old women in the... Go on, finish your thought, sorry. Well, uh, they're having dinner in the restaurant in yeah. Venice and he says to her... Don't look now, but those two little ladies over there are talking about us. Wow, and she wow. goes, she go, Julie Christie goes, not Julie Christie, the character um, mm. uh, in, the, in the book goes into the loo, and the and the lady says, "I can see your little daughter." That's how the story starts. Mm. But um, but but what I also love, just to round it off, and I'm taking too much. Time, yeah, okay, go on. I love that the story ends, and I think this is one of the things that attracted Nick Rogue to the story. It ends. With and I, I, in case of spoilers, I won't say that I won't say the character, but it ends with the character saying about himself. <laughs> I've given it away now. What a bloody stupid way to die! Mm. And I, that was the whole reason <laughs> to do the film, and that's what makes the short the the story brilliant, and that's that's in a way what makes the film really amazingly strong at the end is the moment of revelation that comes in death is a, the sense of absurdity that in the moment of death you understand everything for what it really is. You know, I think that's what struck me. I didn't realize in a way I could verbalize 
uh, until quite recently. But I think that's the power of the ending is that he realizes too late what was really going on. And that's what makes it a supreme tragedy as well as uh, as well as, uh, you know, one of the best British horror films, I think, of all time. Certainly my number one. No, no, and it, 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 it's a it's a regular number one in, in many a list. <clears throat> right then, finally, and we're gonna we're gonna bypass decades now to get to the last one. We've got um, 2016's Liam Gavin wrote and directed this one called um, called The Dark Song. Which before you, uh, it's interesting you picked this because the first time it's come up, and I'm really glad you have because it's. Um, I saw a talk with uh, Steve Oram. Uh, who stars in this film? Um, people might who may not have seen this film may have more likely have seen him play uh, the bloke in Sightseers, um, or if they uh, are into the genre, they may well have seen his directorial debut, R, which I still don't know how to pronounce it, but I'll say it that way. The uh, I think it's pronounced R. Uh... Yeah, yeah. I, I, I interviewed him on the podcast, and I just had to ask him about how many. How do you pronounce eight A's? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was great to be reminded Must of be it. Must be hell if you want to Google it. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and it was great to be reminded of it at that tour because it's kind of one of those films that I'd kind of seen and, and not not locked not logged properly. But now now I get okay. a chance to. Uh... Well, I wanted to. I mean, first of all, I didn't want to be stuck in the past, even mm-hmm. though I think I think inevitably you're drawn if you're asked your favourite films, and I think you're you're drawn towards ones that were formative experiences. Mm. Uh, and those are bound to be in the past, really. And I'm getting, I'm getting on. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not a spring chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but uh, you know, I, w- I wanted to focus on some things that really had a lot of meaning for me. But then I thought, you know what? A lot of films I've seen recently have had big effect on me as well. So I actually want to talk about something recent that actually had a big effect. And I, I and and I had to think about it. And um, you know, I thought about, I thought about some of the films that get fated a lot like it follows and uh, Babadook and all the rest of it and and I actually thought to myself you know what I, I was less impressed by those than I was by A Dark Song mm. I loved um, I loved the integrity of it I loved that it was a different kind of story uh, I'm not saying that everyone I know likes it as much as I do um, I admit that part of the reason it, it keyed with me is that I was in the middle of writing um, a story that had a kind of occult, ritual occult kind of background mm. uh, and, and you know you become attuned to those kind of uh, tropes and, and uh, maybe for that reason I got more from it but I, what I loved about it is really what I loved in Don't Look Now and The Innocence and that's the integrity and the authenticity of the voice really uh, and the fact that those characters felt absolutely real in the context of that story uh, I didn't for a moment and this is the real this is the real challenge of films that are about magic uh, because it's easy even in The Devil Rides Out there, there are a lot of hokey moments where mm. rituals and people in robes and people lighting candles and giving incantations and it looks crappy because nobody really believes that that happens of course it, it does you know, it happens in the bloody Church of England doesn't it mm. but uh, what I mean is when it's when it's an obscure cult or it's something that you make up, somehow you become reticent to accept it. So the idea of making a film which depends on you understanding that people do understand the occult or, 
you know, from a, a psychologically authentic point of view, I believe that that character, um, you know, was into the occult and knew everything about it and was a real person. And and the same with with the woman's character. I believe that her need was to know that character. But that, that speaks so, so to the whole setup for me. Sam, uh, you know, it could have been it could have been done in such a way that was uh, hokey and I'd reject very easily, you know. But but it was it was absorbing and I thought it was brilliantly made. But that speaks to I think Steve Oram's um, performance because. He's you were used to well I'm used to seeing him play um, darkly if not outright comedic roles and to see yes. him do this kind of he's dis- quite a nasty character and yeah yeah egotistical and that's another you know in my in our other podcast I was talking about you know finding the key to characters is often make often not making them likable is mm. actually not looking for what makes them likable and that this film could have easily been done with making that character likable kind of like eccentric, you know, uh, cuddly kind of uh, autistic, semi-autistic kind of nerd. Would have been so easy to do, but he's actually quite obnoxious. Mm. And it's, it makes it more difficult for her to actually trust him. And I love that when people, filmmakers make the situation more difficult for their characters. It's a really, a really a key to writing you don't make it easier for your characters you make it more difficult for your characters and, you know and i think um, i think when when it's because because it's got the idea of the evocation in it um uh, which like you say is, is sort of drawing on ancient magic and the like it it actually it's weird because it never felt like i was you were watching characters in a, who knew they were in a film if that makes sense it wasn't yeah, aware yeah. it was a genre film as it were it felt like a nightmare we were descending into yeah and i thought it, it I often find this with horror films, but especially in this in this one, I I felt, oh my god, I'm really loving this. I'm loving this. I hope it's not going to go wrong in the third act because there's a kind of promise about the third act in mm. in horror films, isn't there? Particularly one that gets it so right uh, in terms of tone, in terms of um, plausibility, all those things that are really risky in the genre. Uh, and I thought they got it absolutely right because did you do need to deliver something in the third act? And I think what he delivered was strange in a way that was totally unexpected to me and i i really applaud that it was it was a really uh, a, a joy to to discover something so different and new well that was oh that was good timing i got that right yeah you got you got your your, your five minute conversation down to a t on the fifth one <laughs> well look just, finally. just just finally then i mean just just draw, drawing those five films together we got the innocence we got quater piss in the mass We've got, sorry, Quatermass and the Pit, even. Uh, we've got Devil Rides Out. <laughs> too many podcasts in too, too short a time. Uh, Devil Rides Out, Don't Look Now, and A Dark Song. From, from, I'd, I, would, I mean, I would, I would say, thinking, listening to what you've said and having the privilege of having talked to you already, the, the, the idea of, um, of, of repression <laughs> coming, coming out through, through the horror some way, shape, or form, and or grief, would would seem would seem like they were key themes in terms of what you what you enjoy about a good horror film. I guess so. It, um, like I say, I don't. Uh, uh, one only discovers through these kind of conversations what those things are. No, I've sure. never lined. I've never actually lined up those five mm. films and talked to the, uh, talked about them back to back. It's quite interesting. Also talking about how I discovered each of them, you know, mm. and it's kind of like a little flag points in my life you know um and obviously there'd be other ones i just chose just chose that those particular ones i mean there's 
you know, and there's of course a uh, there's of course a link between the Devil Rides Out and and the Dark Song. So uh, they're interesting bookends in a, in, mm. in a sense. But um, no, it's it, it's really interesting. That you know, I was going to ask you, what do you think comes through comes through my choices? You know. Well, yeah, no, I think that that's for me. That's it, and it's something that I hadn't thought about. I'd, I'd kind of observed, and it's, it's this is what I always like about doing these podcasts is that suddenly I begin to see. You begin to get a clearer picture of something you've had a woolly image in the back of your mind about. Yeah. Because I'm hearing you say it as opposed to me trying to work it out. It's like, <laughs> it, does that make sense? It's like. It's yeah. Like, well, I hope so. I hope it'll be. I hope it'll feel like that to the uh, to the listeners. Uh, well, that's that's the hope. Yes. Um, but yeah, but, <laughs> but it's that it's that idea that that, that you, you you begin to sort of because <clears throat> obviously as you're talking, my mind's going. What about this film? What about that film as well? You know, it's, at the same time, you begin to see. That they, the, the, the good, the good films, as it were, do use these things to affect, as opposed to, and you used the word before, just to be hokey. I mean, it'd be, it'd be hokey just to have a satanic worship to go, oh God, there's a the presence of the devil. Whereas, like you say, in a dark song, the idea of um, of of, a, of an evocation ritual is actually about. Do you really want to do this? Because I. But also I, in both in both the, in the devil rides out as well. It's it's that. That the actors sell it, you mm. know, which is which is which is really pleasurable to behold. When when you know, it's why I love Christopher Lee and I love Peter Cushing. And even if you give them the most outrageous situations, they'll always do it. They'll always do their utmost to try and convince you of it, you know. And um, whereas it, there are other actors out there that just uh, um, telegraph it in because they they don't understand that it's their job. To actually do that with this kind of film, mm. um, and uh, it's the same with it's the same with science fiction. You know, um, often if I see a, a, a say a British science fiction thing on TV here, I sense a lot of the time British actors don't get it. They don't get that they have to be twice as good as they are in a natu- naturalistic drama to sell the idea. If I see an American show that's a science fiction show. The actors are working far harder because they get it and understand it. But I don't find that here. I find that science fiction and, and genre shows are, are seen as low rent. Um, and I, I, I don't see them putting a, a, as much effort into it. Um, and it pisses me off because I think the actors themselves are good enough. But I don't think they I, I don't think they treat uh, uh, genre in, with the same. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because because thinking about like what we, we we talked before we even start recording about a recent sort of hit, which would be Hereditary, and it and and there's no way on earth you could question Tony Collette's commitment to to the role she's in, can you really? Yeah. For better yeah. or for worse, you know. You, you. I mean, and I often find it frustrating when you hear criticisms of The Shining, where Jack Nicholson is just, just going too far, and I I think to myself. I've never thought that ever. This is a very recent view from my point of view. The idea that he's he's gone to he goes too far with the character, whereas I've always just thought that's a man on the edge from the moment we yeah. meet him. That's all I've ever thought. And the fact is, he goes yeah. over the edge, and you can't really tell the difference between the two. And that makes it all the more scary that he was really it was all the time it was all in him, you know. So, well, it's kind of it's kind of disturbing when someone is scary but also kind of funny. You know, we've all mm. been in situations where. Uh, uh, you know, nervous laughter is you know a, a situation that's both funny and scary at the same time. Mm. Um, you know, is is more than possible. Um, indeed, indeed. Well, look, thank you very much for giving us your second round of time for five great British horror films. It's been an absolute pleasure. 
All right. Pleasure for me too. Good fun. Thanks very much. The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Thank you.